This is the first of four episodes on American Deaf history. These episodes were part of a larger project I started years ago, and I decided to release them now. These are not true crime, and they are not deep dives, but rather a four-part overview of the history of sign language and deaf education in the United States. If you are interested in a true crime case that involves these issues, please listen to the Darlene Vandergeesen episode, which is what inspired me to dust these off. A knowledge of history is extremely useful. It lays before our eyes the great picture of the generations that have preceded us, and in relating the events which passed in their time, it lays before us the precepts of the wise. Laurent Clare Today we're going to talk about sign language in the United States, focusing on sign language we know about that occurred before American Sign Language was established. There is not a consistent record of deafness among pre-Columbian Indigenous people in North America. This is due to limited written accounts, but likely also due to oral histories that were lost when an estimated 90% of America's Indigenous population died after contact. But we do know there was a full and active sign language in use across North America. Today, it is called either broadly Native American Sign Language or more specifically Plains Sign Talk, also known as Plains Indian Sign Language or Plains Sign Language. It's largely believed that Plains Sign Talk began with the Kiowas, a tribe who lived in the Great Plains from eastern Montana down into Colorado and are now a federally recognized tribe headquartered in Oklahoma. The origins of Plains Sign Talk is not only supported by the traditional understanding among other Plains tribes. A study of Plains Sign Talk in North America showed the greatest proficiency of the language starts with the Kiowas and then lessens the farther geographically we get from them. While history textbooks often fail to teach us the differences between the tribes of pre-Columbian America, basically we get Incas, Mayans, Aztecs, and then everyone else gets lumped together. These tribes were not homogenous. They did not share a spoken language, and that's not unlike any other continent. Just because Germany and France are next to each other, it doesn't mean they speak the same language. However, Plains Sign Talk was a language used in common between tribes. While variations in signs could be found within the tribes, the signs were for the most part universally understood. This language allowed trade to occur between tribes that did not speak the same language and was spread more largely with the introduction of the horse in the Americas, which provided increased transportation across the continent. Now, these signs were not only understood by indigenous tribes, they seemed to create a bridge across all language barriers. Spanish explorer Cabeza de Baca spent eight years, starting in 1528, traveling across the southern United States and into Mexico before rejoining the Spanish colonists in present-day Mexico City. 
During his journeys, Cabeza de Baca stated that he came across a number of languages, yet he was able to use signs to ask questions and receive answers, quote, just as if they spoke our language and we theirs. Dutch clergyman Jonas Mikulis reported a similar language being used in the northeast of the present-day United States among the Algonquin. We also see a record of Plains Sign Talk in the Smithsonian Institution from an 1881 report. In the 1800s and into the 1900s, in an act of horrifying ignorance and racism, indigenous people would be taken and put on display in what is today referred to as human zoos. They would then be set up to perform for visitors. This 1881 report told that those fluent in plain sign were able to sign with deaf visitors, and often the two sides would find common ground in their languages, and they would understand each other even though neither group had training in the other one's sign system. I think we too often think of sign language as mimicry or a refined game of charades, when American Sign Language is absolutely not that, and neither are the numerous other sign systems around the world. But when a language is visual, it will take on a shared experience in how it illustrates things, and that understanding can make it easier to be universal. At some point, plain sign talk largely became a construction of hearing people adapting to communication needs, both the need to find a way to communicate those whose spoken language is not understood, but also that could be used to communicate over a distance beyond what a voice can carry. The history we are looking to explore here is more that of the deaf community in what is present-day the United States. While we don't know much about deaf life in pre-Columbian America, we do know that deafness occurred among indigenous people. The founder of the colony of Rhode Island, Roger Williams, wrote about deafness in the Wapanag being prevalent enough that, looking back, we can assume there was genetic deafness occurring within the tribe he encountered. Though plain sign talk was not observed being used exclusively by deaf people, it did begin to change the perceptions of some people about deafness. At the time, it was believed by many Christian faiths that those who were prelingually deaf were unreachable and unteachable, that speech and hearing were inherent to intelligence. The Bible says that one had to hear the word of the Lord. Romans 10.17 says, so faith comes from what is heard. Strict and literal interpretations of the Bible were common at the time, and this is but one example of that. If you could not physically hear, you could not have faith. However, when Jesuit missionaries came to the New World, they met deaf people who signed and communicated very well, likely because of the existence of Plains Sign Talk. This made enough of an impact on the missionaries that in 1618, they wrote to their superiors, they wanted to clarify the stance on admitting deaf people into the church as full members because it was clear they had the ability to learn and grow in faith. Another lesson we can take from this is that when we have an existing sign language within a group, 
that is widely understood even by hearing members of the community, deafness becomes a secondary consideration. And beyond plain sign, we see this in three areas of the original 13 U.S. colonies, Martha's Vineyard, Henniker, New Hampshire, and Sandy River, Maine. Massachusetts is known for the hook-like peninsula that juts out into the Atlantic Ocean. South of this hook is a large island called Martha's Vineyard. Now known as a hot vacation spot for the summer, Martha's Vineyard's 100 square miles was at one time a fairly isolated section of the United States colonies. It was initially inhabited by the Wampanoag, who called the island Nope, meaning the land among the streams. The island was free of the hostilities between the indigenous people and the European settlers often seen on the mainland. Though disease did still take a highly destructive toll on the Wampanoag, cutting their numbers from an estimated 3,000 in 1642 to just over 300 100 years later. In the early 1640s, Thomas Mayhew Sr. purchased rights to settle Martha's Vineyard, the nearby island of Nantucket, as well as a few other areas. This land was desirable because of the relatively long growing season, particularly for the Northeast, and the abundance of seafood like fish and lobster. There was also the space and the proper environment for sheep raising. Mayhew and some other families settled in the area. Fast forward 200 years, and approximately 1 in 155 people on Martha's Vineyard were born deaf. In the rest of the United States, the number was more like 1 in every 5,700. The first recorded deaf person on Martha's Vineyard was Jonathan Lambert. In 1694, at the age of 37, Jonathan and his wife Elizabeth Eddy, who was hearing, moved from Cape Cod to Martha's Vineyard, where Elizabeth's family had already settled. Elizabeth had no known deaf ancestors, and Jonathan was believed to be the first deaf person in his family. Jonathan and Elizabeth had seven children, two of whom were born deaf. This pattern would continue in their family and other families on the island, and that is precisely the first clue that the cause of these high rates of deafness on Martha's Vineyard was a recessive gene. We see this with recessive genes for everything from blue eyes to red hair and, yes, to deafness. You may have a gap in generations where the gene is not seen sometimes so far removed that no one even remembers it before the gene shows up again. Another clue that this was genetic and not the result of an environmental issue is that there were no reports of epidemic-level illnesses on the island. And there was never an entire generation with higher levels of deafness than both the generation before and after. There are around 70 known types of hereditary deafness. Fewer than half of those cases are like we see on Martha's Vineyard, a situation where deafness is the only presenting feature. But how could one family that moved to the island be the root of generations of higher-than-average incidences of deafness? The answer is they weren't. In a phenomenal book called Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language, which explored both the genetic history of Martha's Vineyard and the oral history of the land, 
The author, Nora Grace Grochi, traced a number of these families back to a specific area in Kent, England. It's very likely that the mutation that caused recessive hereditary deafness on Martha's Vineyard that lasted 250 years began many generations before an ocean away. As to how all of those families found themselves on Martha's Vineyard, that is actually pretty easily explained. It was not at all uncommon then or now for immigrant families to settle in areas near those they knew or their families knew back home. These Kentish families initially settled in Massachusetts. When some of them moved to Martha's Vineyard, others followed, and many of them brought their recessive gene for deafness with them. There is a second piece to this puzzle other than their ancestral origins in Kent. That is intermarriage between cousins. In colonial New England, marriage between first cousins was not forbidden. Most of the people on the island married people from the island and often from the same town or neighboring towns. Immigration to Martha's Vineyard was slow, sometimes with just one new family in an entire year moving there. And immigration off the island was also uncommon. Over the generations, double cousins, which are people who were related on both their mother's and father's side of the family, would then marry. Double first cousins are as related to each other, genetically speaking, like half-siblings. That said, it wasn't common for someone to be double first cousins with their spouse. Much more often, the bride and groom would be second cousins on one side and fifth cousins on the other. Two hearing people descending from the same handful of Kentish families with this recessive gene had an increased chance of having one or more deaf children. Approximately 90% of deaf children in America today have two hearing parents. And interestingly, this isn't dramatically different among the deaf people of Martha's Vineyard. 85% of those deaf children had two hearing parents. Through this relatively large percentage of deaf citizens in the community emerged a community sign language. It is called Chilmark Sign Language, named for one of the towns that had the highest concentration of deaf citizens. This sign language was used by virtually everyone in not just that town, but in the neighboring areas on Martha's Vineyard. Chilmark Sign Language predates American Sign Language, and the signs were believed to originally be a blend of family signs from the early deaf families, as well as some British Sign Language. But like all languages, it changed as time went on. After the opening of the first deaf school in Hartford, Connecticut in 1817 by Thomas Gallaudet, deaf young adults would leave the island, attend school in Hartford, and then return with the sign language that would come to be known as American Sign Language. That would influence the sign language being used on the island. And this was actually a two-way exchange. Martha's Vineyard was the largest single source of students to the school in Hartford, and they were usually the only students who arrived at the school with a fully established sign language. Chilmark signs made their way into the lexicon of the school and into what is now American Sign Language. 
It appears that even as students returned to Martha's Vineyard with sign language from the school, Chilmark Sign remained its own sign system regardless of these influences. In 1977, elderly residents who were the last to remember a time when sign language was a daily mode of communication on the island showed examples of Chilmark signs to both signers of British Sign Language and American Sign Language. There was a 40% overlap with British Sign Language and only a 22% overlap with American Sign Language. The emergence of deaf schools had a part in bringing island deafness to an end and with it Chilmark Sign. Deaf schools in the early days were boarding schools. Students generally did not attend until they were at least 12 years old, and many of these schools even took students who were young adults. Many islanders would go to the school and marry someone they met there. Many of them would return to Martha's Vineyard, bringing their new spouse with them and introducing new genes into the population. Many of those coming to the island through marriage did not have a gene for deafness, but became deaf due to childhood illness or accident. Because this new gene pool largely did not carry the same recessive gene necessary for what was happening on Martha's Vineyard, deafness rates began to mirror more closely the population at large. Another interesting side note about Martha's Vineyard students attending the Hartford School. Years later, researchers looked at the written compositions of students from the 19th century, and they could see a distinct difference in the themes of these compositions between the students who came from Martha's Vineyard and those who came from elsewhere. Those from elsewhere, in writing about life before the school, made deafness the central element in how they interacted with the world. They talked about a desire for education, a lack of language, and isolation from their hearing families and communities. They wrote about the loneliness this caused. Students from Martha's Vineyard experienced none of these things, so they wrote about none of these things. Their deafness was secondary. Their stories about growing up on the island didn't even mention deafness, and they weren't dissimilar from the stories any hearing young adult would write about their childhood. They wrote about interactions with the Wampanoag people who still lived on the island and still do. They wrote about the day-to-day happenings of the community. They wrote, I kid you not, about the process of how to dry cod. This confidence of self was something other deaf students had never seen among deaf people. It's no wonder that they not only returned to the island after they finished school, but their new spouses were happy to accompany them there. A second area in early America that had a large deaf population was Henniker, New Hampshire. Nahum Brown was born deaf, and he was the only one in his family who was deaf. He was raised on family signs, which were and are common when a deaf child is born into a hearing family. Nahum married a hearing woman, and they had two children together, both of them born deaf. His son, Thomas Brown, went to the school in Hartford, where he met and married Mary Smith. The two returned to Henniker in the 1830s. The Brown family, being the only deaf individuals in the area, were isolated from their community. But between Thomas and Mary Brown and Thomas's sister, They had five children. Three of them were deaf. 
The next generation saw nine children, with five of them deaf. And by 1850, Henniker and the immediate area had 44 deaf individuals, both from this original family and others who moved to the area. Because the deaf community in Henniker grew after the education of the Brown children at the school in Hartford, family signs were soon discarded and American Sign Language was used in Henniker. Though Thomas and Mary returned to Henniker from the school to farm, Thomas became much better known as one of the first deaf advocates in America. On January 4, 1854, Thomas convened a group in his home with a deaf representative from every New England state except for Rhode Island for the purposes of establishing a society to, quote, promote education and temporal and spiritual happiness of our mute community. So a word about language here, deaf and mute were often seen as connected, even though we know that the vast majority of deaf people are capable of producing speech. In analyzing Thomas's choice to use mute rather than deaf, it's possible he was using the term as a synonym for deaf, which some people did. But we could also read into this a bit and consider that maybe he used the word mute because his focus was on communication and expressing ideas rather than being on not being able to hear. Over the course of four days, this group wrote a constitution for the New England Gallaudet Association for the Improvement of Deaf Mutes. The group would be the predecessor for the National Association of the Deaf, which continues this work to this day. Now, there is a third area in early America, Sandy River, Maine, where many deaf people lived, and they too were influenced by Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard had become more populated leading up to the Revolutionary War. At the time, Maine was part of the Massachusetts colony, and it was much less densely populated. To encourage settlers, they gave land away for free. These factors, plus the negative impact the war had on whaling in the Atlantic Ocean, drove several families up north to Sandy River, Maine. They continued to intermarry, and some married into other deaf families who were already in the Sandy River area. Sandy River Sign Language emerged in these towns. However, there is no record of the actual signs. It's not clear how related to Martha's Vineyard sign it was. It's safe to assume there would have been some overlap, but developing on its own, it may have had some different signs. Like Henniker and Martha's Vineyard, deaf children from Sandy River did attend deaf schools, bringing their signs with them and influencing the development of American Sign Language. But what Plain Sign, Martha's Vineyard, Henniker, and Sandy River have taught us is that when sign language was widely understood, and deaf people were not isolated in their communities, their enjoyment of life increased. And that desire to fully participate in their community never went away. In 1855, a deaf man named John J. Florinoy proposed an all-deaf state be founded in the west of the United States. Brigham Young had recently led bands of Mormon pioneers westward with the first group settling in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. This idea of an entire territory for a religious group inspired Florinoy to consider a similar space for deaf people. 
His argument was that deafness was not a physical handicap. It was a socially constructed one by the hearing majority who denied the deaf access to society. This proposal for a deaf state sparked years of letters back and forth debating the idea. Florinoy was ineccentric and could be characterized as an extremist, which definitely undermined his plans. Just like most deaf children have hearing parents, most deaf parents have hearing children. So when asked what would happen in this deaf state to the hearing children of deaf citizens, Florinoy's response was that the children would have to leave. They would have to be moved to different states. Obviously, this idea lost the support of a lot of deaf people who were also parents. The debate about this deaf state came to an end when the New England Gallaudet Association discussed it at their third annual convention in September 1858. The idea was debated, but ultimately rejected. The consensus was that they preferred to live in a mixed society of deaf and hearing. Without the support of the only major association for the deaf who were focused on the betterment of deaf people, this idea lost any traction it had gained. But again, this desire for community did not go away, and in 2005, the media reported on a 33-year-old man named Marvin T. Miller. He was a deaf man who envisioned a town much like Martha's Vineyard had been. Unlike Martha's Vineyard that had sign come on naturally, this would be a planned community. It would be an entire town built around American Sign Language, where teachers in the public school would know how to sign and would teach classes in sign language. The city council would hold meetings in sign language. There would be no boundaries between the deaf citizens and their community. This town was to be named Laurent after Laurent Clare, who was the first deaf teacher of deaf students in America, and it would be located in South Dakota. Able to accommodate a population of about 2,500, there were 150 families on the waiting list for the town, which had a projected opening date of 2008. The families were a mix of deaf, hard of hearing, and hearing individuals. Critics argued, similar to the previous attempt, that the isolation of the deaf shouldn't be a goal. But unlike the previous vision, Laurent, South Dakota, was not designed to only be for deaf people. Miller never proposed anything as drastic as booting children out of town. The unifier of Laurent, South Dakota, wasn't deafness. It was a language. Anyone willing to use sign language as their primary language in the community was welcome. However, in 2007, Miller declared bankruptcy. He had run out of his own financial resources, and a major donor towards the project just didn't come through. In spite of all the planning done by city planners and architects and the interest for families to move there, the project just could not get off the ground. Today, most deaf people do not experience being surrounded by their native language outside of attending a deaf school. 
This has driven thousands of people to residential schools for the deaf that really found a footing in America in the 19th century. On the next episode, which will be out tomorrow, we will cover the founding of deaf schools in America, which oddly requires us to start with the French Revolution. This series was researched, written, hosted, and edited by me, Charlie Worrell. The opening quotes were voiced by Lainey Hobbs, the host of True Crime Fan Club. You can find the link to the sources for the series and the transcripts in the show notes.